0: Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent. And we're picking up with step number five on obedience. And we're coming down to the last few paragraphs uh, of the the section. And the focus uh, shifts a little bit here for for us on uh, the nature of obedience and uh, what's at stake Uh, how to respond to to situations where one is being insulted and how the the virtue of obedience uh, helps us face those realities. And then his focus towards the end of it it shifts to the relationship with one's spiritual father and protecting that relationship uh, because of its great value. So again, we're on page 95, picking up with paragraph 114. I've seen innocent and most beautiful children come to school for the sake of wisdom, education, and profit. But through contact with other pupils, they learnt they're nothing but cunning and vice. The intelligent will understand this. And uh, we, this is where we left off last time, and if you've seen in the previous paragraph, He warns us that the common life, while it can be the school of virtue, it also can very easily become the school of vice. That personal influence is always something that's very important, you know, from education to evangelization. And and this can work in both ways, where you have everyone striving for virtue and to live a good and holy life then that influence is going to be positive. Entering into that that community and those relationships is going to be deeply formative in a positive way. But uh, such common life can also become something that's deformative, that uh, to enter into a, a community where there isn't this common striving for virtue. He said in the previous paragraph, Uh, We do not acquire for ourselves virtue, but rather malice, vice, cunning, craftiness, curiosity, and anger. And so John uh, takes a step further and uh, draws to mind what can happen to children when they go to school. So innocent, perhaps at home under the constant influence of their their parents, but then when in school, uh, coming under the influence uh, of uh, other children and maybe ideas that are contrary to what the parents put forward. And if there's a day and an age where we can understand what John is talking about, I think it's our own. And uh, people are becoming pretty fearful of sending their children to school because of the, the negative influence there. And, uh, and, but John's point is that uh, in our churches, within the church itself, Uh, things can very quickly go south and whole communities uh, can devolve very quickly from being, as I mentioned, schools of virtue into something that becomes rather corrupt. And he'll build upon this point a little bit here and then the next step as well. Uh, And in fact, the next couple of paragraphs, but it's something that we have to give great care to And our conduct throughout the course of the day, whether it's in the home or the workplace, uh, should be guided by this, that there is a personal influence, not only in what we say, but our very bearing, uh, the way we uh, behave around others. All of this speaks to our deeper identity. And sometimes it's something as simple as tenderness uh, or gentleness with others that bears witness to what it is that sh- shapes our hearts and rolls over our thoughts. In fact, one of the early fathers uh, within the church, uh, n- never declared a saint, Evagrius Pontus, said one of the things that the devils fear the most is this spirit of tenderness. And I think it's because it's so rooted in the virtue of humility itself, that to treat another with this kind of respect, to elevate them. Uh, in such a way that you would never want to wound them, is to take that position of, of, of humility, uh, to be ever sensitive uh, to their sensibilities. And this is not something that's taught very much anymore, you know, to be respectful of, of the other in this way. 115, it is impossible for those who learn a craft wholeheartedly not to make daily advance in it. but some know their progress while others by divine providence are ignorant of it. And maybe just take those first two sentences uh, because I think they hold so much within it that you know if we are pursuing a certain craft, you know, whether it's academics, music, art, on a daily basis, there is going to be progress. If one focuses all of one's attention and energy, on one particular area, eventually one becomes an expert uh, simply by the investment of self and time uh, in, in the pursuit of a kind of excellence surrounding it. And uh, this is true, you know, in the life of virtue to develop the habit of virtue through engaging in all the practices that John and other fathers described, this brings a, a kind of growth, our response to the grace of God uh, through the ascetic life to exercise our our faith is to grow in it Uh, but he he tells us that some know their progress and can see it but others uh, the awareness of it is kept from them uh, because if they were to become aware of it there's always the danger of falling into pride or kind of laziness and negligence that some might never really see the progress, but might only be aware of the striving uh, that they engage in on a day to day basis, uh, to keep their their minds and their hearts focused upon God and to engage others with charity. And again, all of this is to protect uh, the, the mind and the heart. He goes on to say a good banker never fails in the evening to reckon the day's profit or loss. But he cannot know this clearly unless he enters it every hour in his ledger. For the hourly account brings to light the daily account. And so it's an interesting image, you know, that he uses something from the world very much like our Lord does in the parables uh, to uh, help us to focus upon how it is that we are to engage in our life from moment to moment, hour to hour, day to day. That we are attentive uh, to how it is that we are responding, the thoughts that come to mind, the opportunities to love that we embrace or do not embrace, the call to prayer that we heed or that we let pass us by. And this account, taking account of these things is uh, an important kind of examination uh, that takes place. And I think it's also for this reason that uh, John dedicates an entire step to the remembrance of death, uh, where one has to give an account to God. That he says that a person who hourly remembers death ceases to sin, that it heightens one's awareness of the importance of the moment. Uh, and I'll use that phrase everybody's going to laugh every moment is freighted with destiny uh, because every moment's an opportunity to love that's either embraced or passed by and uh, and so to give take an account daily of how it is that we are responding to the grace of God is very important in the writings of the fathers any comments so far I'll pause there and Anyone have anything to add or to say about this, these first two paragraphs.
1: Okay.
2: Number 116.
0: When a foolish person is accused or shouted at, he is wounded by it and tries to contradict or at once make an apology to his accuser, not out of humility, but in order to stop the accusations. But when you are being ridiculed, be silent and receive with patience these spiritual cauterizations, or rather purifying flames. And when the doctor has finished, then ask his forgiveness. For while he is angry, perhaps he will not accept your apology. So a curious paragraph, and certainly something hard to apply to our day-to-day life. But I think we can see well enough what what he's talking about here, that sometimes when we find ourselves the focus of other people's mockery or insults or their anger, that we become so agitated in our minds and our hearts about it, uh, either by anger or our anxiety, that we will begin to apologize in order to get the person to stop what they're doing. But I think John's point here is an important one, that often we will do this not out of the sake of humility, but rather because we're trying to stop the onslaught, uh, to stop what is taking place there, which is a kind of humbling. And, And the images that John uses are very strong, a cauterization or purifying of the heart that is taking place in order to remove any pride that is within our hearts and often that it remains hidden to us, except in moments like this, when we find ourselves maybe being wrongly accused by somebody or criticized for doing something and or, uh, you know, they characterize something that we do or don't do in the most negative way possible. And we'll apologize, not because again uh, out of out of humility uh, and a willing acceptance of that but rather again wanting it to stop trying to preserve some remnant of self-esteem for ourselves Uh, or because uh, another passion still has a kind of grip on us and maybe it's anger that uh, we want a person to stop before we, we blow up or lose our temper with them. And this is a difficult thing because I think self-esteem is sort of exalted, especially in our own day. And there is a kind of radical sens- sensitivity now to, uh, to what people say and do, uh, even when it is the most benign of things. And, uh, and so this idea of being uh, having you know, pride within us or a kind of false self-esteem cauterized or pure, purified from our hearts is difficult to wrap our minds around. Uh, how could this possibly be something that is spiritually fruitful for us? It is it not tantamount to just being verbally abused by another? And again, I think the standard uh, in understanding this is, is always Christ himself, that we keep our eyes fixed upon him, uh, one who's perfectly innocent, but certainly was the focal point uh, of people's critique. He was considered a heretic, uh, a blasphemer, a lawbreaker, Uh, all all the worst things that people could think about him. They did and would say it and then eventually striking him and then spitting upon him, you know, all all these kind of of abuses in his innocence. And I don't think we can look at the life of Christ without also seeing within it something that is meant to, to shape the way that we see these things and experience them In our day to day life, Uh, the fathers are pretty careful about this in saying that, you know, when it has to do with ourselves, it's one thing. When it has to do with another, or there's an injustice directed towards another, is when we should, you know, say something, step out of our silence in order to protect another. But uh, when we are aware, I think, of what's going on within our heart or the spiritual battle that's taking place there, uh, we can enter into those moments and have them become these opportunities of purification. Ashley wrote, was just about to say, reminds me of how Christ was silent before his accusers during the Passion. And that's right, I I think, the, the writings of the fathers so often make the, the Gospels and the, the teachings of Christ and the life of Christ itself come alive for us. And again, in an unvarnished kind of way. And I think when we read a paragraph like this, it is jarring as some of the passages within the Gospel uh, to be To understand that being a Christian within the world is not going to bring us uh, happiness, and it's not going to bring us the praise of others, but it's going to bring us the equal scorn uh, to what Christ himself received. Any comments about this, though? It's a difficult and challenging paragraph. This oversensitivity is called taking umbrage. Yes. And we're very good at it, and uh, we move to that position, I think, very, very quickly. You know, one, one, again, wanting to protect the ego that is
2: often very delicate.
0: When our identity is rooted in Christ, I think these things pass over us, and. Uh, We've heard multiple times, both in Evericatenos and in Climacus, you know, saints telling their disciples to go to the cemetery and go there and praise them. You know, what did they say back to you? Nothing. Go there and insult them. You know, what did they do? What did they say? Nothing. And for those who are dead to the world and alive to Christ, that our, our response is to be the same. Uh, when those in in this world would insult us, what, what is it they can take away from us when our identity is fully rooted in, in Christ, our dignity and our identity, identity Number 116. When a foolish person is accused or shouted at, he's wounded, oh, I'm sorry. I already did that one. I apologize. I apologize, I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, Number 117. While struggling against all the passions, let us who are in communities struggle every hour, especially against these two, these, these two, greed of the stomach and irritability. For in a community, there is plenty food for these passions. So gluttony and anger you know, both dangers within the common life. And it's sort of a sad joke that, you know, when you go into a monastery uh, these days, uh, you know, the meals often are, you know, you have multiple choices and it's a huge buffet that's put out. And that there are three square meals and often huge meals. Uh, And if one were to go to every one of those, there would never be a moment in the day where one would be hungry or or thirsty, that no longer are they uh, uh, schools of sanctity or the ascetic life, but uh, often places of comfort. And this uh, gluttony can give rise then to also this kind of irritability. You know, of not getting what we want, you know, and when we want it, uh, living in community life is bound to, to breed this kind of a- anger over these things. When one is competing for various things, wh- whether it's the attention of uh, the superiors or a particular work or whatever it might be, uh, battles can break out over the smallest of things. Uh, so, so gluttony and irritability within the common life are two that are very difficult to struggle with, Ren. Concerning paragraph 116, something that is coming to mind is that in doing this, I could easily see a danger of becoming resentful for silently accepting abuse and then following it with an apology and one that might not be all that sincere. How do we do this? without allowing a spirit of anger to take root. Well, it's we do it not by strength of will and simply a kind of human endurance. I think it's part of it arises from putting on the mind of Christ and living in Christ. And this is why we hear the emphasis on constant prayer, to be immersed in the peace of the kingdom, to be immersed in the peace of Christ, uh freeze one from the the kind of movement that we often experience within the mind and the heart that the things that people say to us are are not taken on this personal level that we have the capacity to discern the greater truth at hand that people are often driven by their own passions or something psychological or even something demonic that they're being tempted uh, into this kind of behavior and the greater one's purity of heart becomes and the greater one uh, has within one's heart the peace of Christ then one can make one's way through these experiences not being pulled apart by it or falling into a kind of fierce silence and then as you said apologizing for it even though one not is not sincere where we're still raging within, or where we feel that uh, we've been you know, treated with you know, a lack of dignity. And that might be true. We might have been treated with a lack of dignity. But I think the, the, what we hear in the gospel, what we see in Christ and what we hear in the fathers is that our dignity and identity is to be rooted in something that is far greater that our faith in Christ should be such that nothing uh, in our life can be taken away from us that strips us of that, whether it's the words of people or if they were to physically take what belongs to us and then even our life. And this is why we so often see, you know, the great saints going to martyrdom with this kind of freedom, even facing You know some of the stories recently of the post I put up of the saints of the day are horrifying when you hear about them. But so often they were able to enter into it without a kind of fear or anxiety because their again their identity was so deeply rooted in Christ. And all of these things show us that you know so often our our faith is something that is notional, you know that it is in our our mind you know, this belief in Christ and and our sense of faith rather than it being rooted in experience. This knowing the love of Christ and the preciousness of what he has given us. That what he has given us, nothing can take away and what he's given us endures until eternity. And the the deeper... uh, sense that we have of this and and the the greater our purity of heart the more that we are going to be rooted upon what is solid ground remember i mentioned isaiah the prophet saying the lord is an eternal rock and so if we are firmly rooted upon him uh the the waves of whether it's you know the chaos of the world or the the verbal abuse of others might be striking against us but we will be unshaken by it and you know i, I don't want to be cavalier about this because I, I think there's something that's very painful and difficult about it and when he describes it as a kind of cauterization you know of the heart uh you know it, it can be painful and you know, there's something that brings deep healing there. When one has gone through these experiences and holds on to that identity, then there is a freedom in the face of things that follow that, Uh, but going through it can be a bitter
2: and painful kind of thing. LJ
0: writes, Lou Judd, direct message. Okay, I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry, Lou. You said to say it anonymously. Too late. Uh, Should I go ahead and still say it or,
1: or not? So sorry about that. Lou, are you still with us? Should I go ahead and read your comment? Okay.
0: It seems most violent area of personal verbal attacks nowadays is with regard to mask wearing and taking a taking the jab. The demonic globalists have attacked our personal freedoms, and so many people have been hoodwinked by this. So now many people have to choose to lose their jobs, lose their school, lose their scholarship because of a jab or a mask. Yeah, you know I think we do live in a very difficult times in that regard. And there's been so much confusion uh, surrounding this. You know, the, 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 the reaction that one might say is normal, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, the fear and the anxiety, but that fear and anxiety seem to prevail in so many arenas of our lives as human beings uh, to, to the point that it then does become very, Uh, costly as you mentioned here that people are categorized and compartmentalized you know put in this uh, kind of box and uh, unless one sort of conforms to those things and you know I don't want to get into you know certain people here have a whole host of of views on this I, I think what I would say is is that that anxiety, that fear is something that prevailed for so long that it altered the way that we engage each each other and the world around us. We began to live our our life in fear. And this had enormous impact uh, upon people within the church as well, that there was such deep isolation that took place that uh, it broke down communion within the life of the church, that in many ways, as a Christian community, we were not prepared to deal with this trial, this cross that came to us, uh, that was very real. And, you know, whether parts of that or small parts or large parts of that were manipulated in one way or another, uh, or intensified, uh, is beyond, the purview of our discussion, I think, but uh, one can say that it it did sort of pull, pull us into this isolated kind of existence where people were not being nourished spiritually. So I think it weakened the church. It could have been a moment, I think, when uh, the church responded in order to strengthen the faith of, of the community as a whole uh, as we face this. And what what it was, was more a reaction to those concrete realities. And again, I think that's understandable. But for, for us as Christian men and women, I think our response has to be in light of what's being revealed to us through the, you know, through the cross, the Eucharist, through the gospels, how, how is, what is a Christian's response in a time of crisis? And I think people felt that there was a void of leadership in in that regard. Uh, And that Christians were left in isolation and for a long, long time. And, uh, you know, watching mass or the divine liturgy on television is not the same thing and it's not going to be nourishing for people. And, and so, you know, I think there are times, and this is what I brought up a little bit earlier, that when it, things like this have to do with justice and where other people are being affected or afflicted by it, then often there is a responsibility to engage. Uh, and, you know, certainly many people have and are still are. And, uh, Again, I don't claim to be an expert on this, and but in so many ways, I, I feel that we, we haven't responded well to it.
2: I remember when
0: the towers were, you know, struck by the airplanes. We had a philosopher from Franciscan University come in. His name was uh, Dr. John White, and uh, and. You know, he gave a talk on, you know, the Christian ethic in a time of crisis or in a time of terror. You know, how is it that we are to live our life and how do we respond to these realities that we had never faced as a country before, or maybe not on, on this kind of level? What is to be our response on the deepest level of our being and the deepest level of our religiosity? And I think there's such a void spiritually now that often we don't have even the capacity to enter into these realities, Uh, being able to hear what God would say to us or where the spirit would be guiding us.
1: Daniel Allen.
0: I think resentment also comes when one thinks one is unjustly accused or put down, when in reality, what tends to confront us is more true in one way or another than we want to admit. And when it may not be a fair accusation on the surface, in one way or another, it is likely true. When we realize our own sin, put to death God himself, what accusation could be false? How could distinction still matter? And when it's still difficult, then what St. Philip Neri said can always apply. There, except for the grace of God, go I. Remembering one's own sinfulness makes this easy. Forgetting it makes it excruciating to bear. Yes, you know a- absolutely. I think, uh, and this is, I think, part of what John is putting forward to us here, that the accusation in those moments might be off base or they might be partial but the the reality is we stand before god uh you know that it's, it says within the scripture even the perfect sins seven times a day that is perfectly and uh even the just sins sin seven times a day and so you know we often look at ourselves in a more positive light than is is the truth, you know, in terms of our life as a whole, what goes on within our hearts, the thoughts that we have, the things that we've done in the past. And so we will get up in arms over something somebody will say to us, not realizing that we've probably done that a thousand different times in different ways throughout the
1: course of our life.
0: Let's move back to John and see where he takes us with it. The devil suggests to those living in obedience the desire for impossible virtues. Similarly to those living in stillness, he proposes unsuitable ideas. Scan the mind of inexperienced novices and there you will find deluded notions, a desire for stillness. For the strictest fast, for uninterrupted prayer, for absolute freedom from vanity, for unbroken remembrance of death, for continual compunction, for perfect freedom from anger, for deep silence, for surpassing purity. And if by divine providence there are without these, they are without these to start with, they leap in vain from one thing to another, having been deceived. For the enemy urges them to seek these perfections prematurely, so that they may not persevere and attain in due course. But to those living in stillness, the deceiver extols hospitality, service, brotherly love, community life, visiting the sick. The devil's aim is to make the latter as impatient as the former. So... You know, one of the ways that the evil one will delude us is to make us be willful in the spiritual life and willful even in the pursuit of virtue, thinking that we can take upon ourselves uh, certain uh, kinds of ascetical practices or certain forms of prayer and disciplines that are far far beyond us or the strength and the grace that god has given us at the moment or that we would make those decisions outside of the guidance of our our spiritual our spiritual father or that we would uh be tempted to to to, to do something that is contrary to our state in life and here he uses you know someone who's embraced the life of stillness that the temptation there isn't anything sinful but it's something outside the scope of their vocation hospitality service brotherly love community life visiting the sick you know those who are called to the contemplative life or to this life life of deep stillness that's always going to be the temptation to draw them back into the things of the world
1: any comments okay Sorry,
3: father david one question on that oh. just couldn't type fast enough um am i understanding him right because if i am this is a really helpful little comment um where it seems like john is so, sort of saying in the first part right like um Scan the mind of inexperienced novices, and there you will find diluted notions, the mm-hmm. desire for stillness, strict as fast uninterrupted prayer, freedom from vanity, unbroken remembrance of death, continual communctions, passing purity. All these things, right? Right. That, and then he ends it with patience. That the whole point is to break one's patience, and to make one pa- impatient, mm-hmm. that to like bear, in a sense, your own imperfections right like because you can be like gosh why do I lose my temper why did I this why did I snap why did I why why is this a thing that still you know tests me or something but to simply like bear your own imperfections not to not to like want to or not to give into them intentionally right but even when you do you're like "Eh, there I I lost it again or something right Mm -hmm. like to break your endurance in a sense right whereas like and sorry one last thing because what's what's interesting is this kind of made me think because recently I was thinking how patience I feel like was often um like a comparison that's used I hear all the time with five kids oh man you must have so much patience and I'm like yeah (laughs) (laughs) but um but uh but then I started thinking like but you know I don't even know if that's patience that might be like gentleness and meekness and things like that but patience is more like enduring the things that you'd rather not have to endure in a sense, you know? Like, I don't know, anyways, does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I think you're exactly on, on point there that often the most difficult thing for us to bear is our own poverty, to see ourselves in, as weak or need of forgiveness, To ask for forgiveness, whether it's from God or from others, to, you know, endure that struggle, seeing ourselves fall into anger and frustration with others, you know, as if somehow that we should be able to leap up the entire ladder to that perfect patience or all the other things that you you read and that John describes. That you know, humility is such an important part of this spiritual life that one has to be guided by the grace of God and keep one's focus upon upon Him, and not to have it in our own mind of fashioning this spiritual life or of bearing the crosses that we are given in a particular way. You know that often we you know, want, want to shape our spiritual life in the way that we, we think is godly rather than allowing ourselves simply to be guided by God along the path that, that he has set out before us and that is going to be truly sanctifying.
2: It's a hard thing because we, we
0: are, are driven by ego so so strongly that it does also shape our, our spiritual life and how we how we enter into it. And beyond that, where it is also shaped by human reason and judgment that is limited. And you know, this section on obedience is jarring. And the next section uh, on penitence, he takes us into a place where individuals broke their vows had some great failure. And so they enter into an even deeper penitential state, a place called the prison. So in, in reality, it was a penitentiary. They freely embraced sort of the, the image of a convict, one who is right rightly accused. And so, uh, and then you know places themselves in this ex- existence to do penance because of of their fall, And it puts before us this kind of desire uh, for virtue, to love God, to be faithful, the mourning over one's sins in such a way that is almost incomprehensible to us. To the point that John will say, you know, this is going to be really hard for people to believe or find to be credible. And he says, you know, my stories aren't meant for all. You know, if there's any kind of lack of eagerness or zeal for God within oneself, then one is not even going to be able to bear to read these things. And, you know, it's one of the reasons I keep coming back to say, that, say this, that in reading The Fathers, we often have to be prepared to have, you know, our minds and our hearts stretched uh by a a deeper faith to consider what it is to love what it is to have faith what it is to be obedient not in accord with human judgment and reason but in accord with faith what faith illumines for us and what has been revealed to us in christ and the cross and the holy eucharist and we've gotten to this point that we've so domesticated the gospel and we so take things for granted that it almost isn't challenging To us anymore, we can hear the gospel without it, without it bringing us to this state of wondering: Am I I really responding to God on this level? Is my obedience really conformed to that of Christ? Is my heart so set on fulfilling the Father's will that I'm able to take what the world places on me and not be shaken by that? Because I'm so fixed upon pleasing God and living for him. And, you know, I've often heard before, you know, so many people say, oh, you know, you don't want to encourage people to read like the Philokalia or, or writings like this because they could fall into error. You know, well, of course. But I think the greater thing is what John points out is that a person could read it and fall into despair. You know, thinking that, oh, my gosh, this is so far beyond me. In reality, it is beyond us. It's only by the grace of God and by being given an heroic faith that allows us to comprehend divine things and what it is to follow such a master, one who embraced the cross on our behalf, one who allows himself to be broken and poured out for us, for our nourishment. How's that to shape our identity? And if we're not allowed, if we're not willing to allow ourselves to be stretched and even our faith stretched and allow ourselves to be drawn along by wonder and the discomfort that that brings, then one has to question, John says, one's
2: eagerness for God or one's zeal for God.
0: We're, we're always very quick to, to set up the conditions on love or obedience when the whole gospel or what has been revealed to us from the incarnation on shows us this unconditional love that God empties himself and takes the form of a slave, a servant, even unto, and becomes obedient even unto death this is what we're being asked to allow to shape how we view our life and love and our and our relationship with god rachel wrote we must patiently with love wait for christ to reveal himself to us in a way that he chooses to reveal himself that's right and you know it's often a difficult thing to wait to listen you know i've mentioned cardinal Surrah's book the power of silence and I think that's what what we need in our day and age, to wait, to listen, to enter into that silence, to allow God to guide us in the direction that he wants
1: us to go.
2: You know,
0: rather than feeling that, you know, that we shape the church or, you know, that we sort of have this wisdom, everybody's the Pope and can sort of, sort of take the helm and guide the, the church where it needs to go.
1: We have a lot of popes out there these days. Not just two, but millions. (laughs) Okay, where were we? 120. Let us judge the nature
0: of our passions and of our obedience and choose our spiritual father accordingly. If you are prone to lust, then do not select as your trainer a wonder worker who is ready for everyone with a welcome and a meal, but rather an ascetic who will hear of no consolation and food. If you are haughty, then let him be stern and unyielding and not meek and kindly. Let us not seek those who have the gift of foreknowledge and foresight, but rather those who are unquestionably humble and whose character and place of residence correspond to our maladies. And after the example of the above mentioned righteous Abbasiris, adopt this good habit so conducive to obedience of always thinking that the superior is testing you, and you will certainly never go wide of the mark. If your director constantly rebukes you, and you thereby obtain great faith and love for him, then know that the Holy Spirit has invisibly made his abode in your soul and the power of the most high has overshadowed you. So, you know, one has to have a kind of discerning spirit in who one seeks as a spiritual guide. And often we we want someone who's going to tell us what we want to hear. And, uh, you know, even, even some of the wisest of, of spiritual directors can fall in into that, you know, a, a pattern of telling people exactly that, what, what they want to hear, rather than maybe the harder truth, uh, or telling people to wait, or, or taking them along a path that is harder, more difficult, or requires more from them. Uh, and Often spiritual direction be, can become too much of like a, a confer, confirmation uh, or uh, of the person and where, where they are in their spiritual life rather than really offering the healing balm. It doesn't mean, you know, certainly that the spiritual elder has to be harsh in that, but it's, you know, it's, it's not a kind of therapeutic setting. You know, to bolster the self-esteem of the other, it's in order to help them to respond more fully to God in their life and where the Spirit is guiding them.
2: And that might mean telling them something that they don't want to hear.
0: It's a hard thing. I don't think anybody here would want you know go out and choose somebody who's stern because we we know that we we are filled with pride, or we're given over to you know,
2: gluttony, or whatever it might be. 121.
0: But do not boast or rejoice when you bear insults and indignities courageously, but rather mourn that you have done something meriting rebuke, and incense the soul of your director against you. Do not be surprised at what I'm going to say, for I have Moses to support me. It is better to sin against God than against our Father, for when we anger God, our director can reconcile us. But when he is incensed against us, we no longer have anyone to make propitiation for us. But it seems to me that both cases amount to the same thing. So, you know, in John's eyes, we don't want to anger God or one spiritual father. But if you anger one spiritual father and lose him, then one is walking blind and has no one, you have no one to intercede for you. And, uh, you know, it's, it's putting a lot of weight on that role of the spiritual father and the responsibility of the spiritual father as well, uh, to be loving and to give oneself over fully to the care of others, to the care of souls. Uh, But it it shows us something of how they viewed that role. You know, very much like Moses. That's a powerful image. You know, the the one would, Moses would go to God, you know, to protect his people,
2: to intercede on their behalf. But in the end, you know, John says it amounts to the same thing, you
1: know you don't want to really anger either. So
0: simply live an obedient life. Let us look carefully and distinguish and keep alert as to when we ought to endure thankfully and silently accusations made by our pastor and when we ought to reassure him. It seems to me that in all cases when indignity is offered to us, we should be silent for it is our moment of profit. But in those cases where another person is involved, we should put up a defense so as to maintain the link of love and peace unbroken. So this is a wonderful little phrase, our moment of profit. And I don't think any of us would probably see those times of accusations and insults as being a moment of profit, but it is, that moment if we are able to maintain silence and not simply react on the emotional or even intellectual level but on the level of faith that it is a moment of profit for us that it is something that is purifying so that that's something different than kind of a kind of slavishness or false obedience or where a person has no identity you know, that it's been driven out of them. You know, a person who is obedient does have a strong identity and clarity about where their identity is rooted, especially if they can see these as moments of profit, that their identity is so rooted in Christ that they would remain silent, allow that to do its work upon the heart, to free the heart, from you know this false dignity or false self-esteem that we cling to our ego, and uh, and allow that moment to pass and take hold of it, rather than giving ourselves over to a kind of anger.
2: And again, I, as I mentioned, you know the only
0: time where we would break from that is for protecting charity, where there is a misunderstanding between the elder and another, or between two members of the community, that we would intervene to say something to correct a misunderstanding. And then let's see, 123, those who have leapt out of obedience will tell you of its value. For it was only then that they fully realized the heaven in which they had been living the heaven in which they were living. (laughs) Uh, You know, I think whenever we've talked about uh, the love of virtue or the love of certain spiritual practice, to love fasting, you know, to develop this habit of mind where we look upon these things that draw us closer to God and develop an affection, a yearning for them. And a person who's left and leapt leapt out of obedience, will know its value on the other side. You know, when they uh, sort of impulsively step out of it because it's difficult, that they begin to see that it was heaven, that what God had led them to, uh, but was painful, was actually something that was curative and perfecting in their virtue. And uh, to leap out of it is to experience great loss. He who is running towards dispassion and God regards a great law lo- as a great loss any day in which he is not reviled. Just as trees swayed by the wind drive their roots deeply into the earth, so those who live in obedience get strong and unshakable souls. So, again, you know, these beautiful images uh, very much like the parables. Again, you know, a tree is made strong by the storms and the wind. You know, what is described here is accurate. You know, that the swaying back and forth uh, makes it put down deep roots. And so, you know, when a person is experiencing this on a day-to-day basis, then there is a kind of strengthening and virtue that's taking place. And again, you know, this can be a hard thing for us to imagine if we've never tasted the fruit of this kind of obedience in one's life, Uh, where he describes here, it gives one, you know, a strong and unshakable soul. If one has never come to experience then What uh, living in obedience and what enduring through those insults and being reviled brings a person, one is never going to desire it. It's only when in faith we take that path, that narrow path, and begin to taste the sweetness of that strength of soul that it brings, that one can really begin to desire it. And this is why we can't expect it to come immediately. I think it's only apt why, why one undergoes training for years within a monastery, you know, a long novitiate and then years and years uh, of living under a rule and under an habit, that gradually that, that f- greater freedom and strength comes. He has come to know his weakness by living in stillness and has then changed his place and sold himself to obedience, though he is blind, gazes toward Christ without difficulty. So, you know, if a person who's living uh, in stillness uh, and, you know, steps out of that into the life of obedience, uh, finds that he's gained something, that as much as that stillness or solitude holds out for an individual, it's not always the best thing for them. And in fact, it's only after a person has been completely formed by that they can enter into that stillness of life after having been trained and shaped by the life of obedience and community. So if they experience a weakness in that stillness, uh, to step back into the common life, is no shame, brings no shame to them. It shows a kind of wisdom that they are going to step back in to the training ground. And then finally, keep at it, brother athletes. And I will say it again, keep running as you hear wisdom crying of you as gold in the furnace or rather in a community, the Lord has tried them and as a whole burnt offering has he received them into his bosom. To him belongs the glory and eternal dominion with the unoriginate father and with the holy and adorable spirit. Amen. This step is equal in number to the evangelist. Athlete, keep running fearlessly. Keep running fearlessly. So it's not an easy path uh, to live the life of obedience and that it is kind of entering into a furnace and a place where one is going to be tried. And it's when this obedience is perfected that one becomes a confessor of the, of the faith, that one bears witness to the obedient one whose food was to do the will of his heavenly father. And again, this is, I think, what we lose sight of in our evangelization Now, what what the world needs is saints in the sense of of obedient souls, those who are conformed to Christ, who bear witness to the same self-emptying, selfless love and obedience and humility. This is what's transformative and what was redemptive for us. And so to bear witness to it in the world, is going to take place not through words but through the way that we live our life see how they love each other and you know i think when we look at our life as a whole you know it's see how we love god and how we give ourselves over to to him and to each other
2: and in, in that same spirit any
1: comments on Any of these paragraphs or the whole step.
0: I remember reading this the first time, and it was like nothing I'd ever read before, (laughs) of course, and uh, and jarring, you know. And I think there are parts of it that you uh, you wonder: is is this sane? because there's like this thin line between sanctity and insanity you know in in terms of the way that one views reality and how one enters into the life of the world and i mentioned to you thomas merton's little reflection on the next step this place where individuals go the prison to mourn over their sin to do this uh, to li- embrace this life of deep penance. And, you know, he almost, he sort of dismisses it. Uh, and I understand why, you know, he does, but he dismisses it as a place of profound psychological disorder. And the more that I've read The latter of the Divine Ascent over the course of the years, the more that it confirms for me the truth and the beauty of what is being described. And John warns us, as I said, you know, my stories aren't meant for all because it's going to take you to this place that it's where it's not going to just be uncomfortable for you, but it's, it's going to be so jarring to the sensibilities that it can lead one to despair of, walking the path of faith. But for those who have this courage and zeal and eagerness for God, it's going to reveal something of extraordinary beauty. And uh, it does over the course of time. I think we, what we are being shown in it uh, is again, w- what the virtues are uh, in Christ, and as they are revealed to us in Christ not just the concept of them that we have within our own mind. No matter how perfect that might be, it's always going to fall short of the reality of, of the perfection of love, of the perfection of obedience, or the perfection of
1: humility. Sue and Mark. Hello? And Mark. Okay, thank you, Father. Um, I know that
4: uh, you know, I don't know very much about this, but I'm almost wondering if um, it's not deliberate in some way when he quits, before he uh, takes us into the prison, if he really talks about, when he's talking about the novices and how we in our, in our vainglory and in our mind, how we imagine we're gonna have all this perfection. And it really kind of lowers our expectation down um, and to help us with our humility. And if it isn't that um, almost um, something that's just such a good thing to do before we enter into the reading of this prison, because, you know, um, it's so hard. The the things that are in the prison are going to be hard, because basically these are men who have, you know, broken their monastic vow in some way, and they're doing purgatory on earth, you know, for those sins. And um, we don't like to think about purgatory, you know, we don't like to think about um, the fact that our, you know, we have so much more penance to do for our sins rather than just what is given to us. And um, it's, I don't know. That's my thought. It's a little bit disjointed. I'm sorry.
0: No, I mean I, I'm following what you're saying, and that there is this kind of order in John's thought, and that one, you know, virtue leads into another, and he will say as much, you know, as we move forward, you know, that obedience precedes this re- repentance for a particular reason. And he sort of compares it to Peter and John running to the tomb. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, obedience is sort of, you know, the this, this steady path, but, you know, the repentance outruns it in some way. And uh, because it acknowledges one's poverty and it humbles a person so that even a person, and this is what John sort of comes away from after witnessing the prison, wondering that if in some ways their path to the kingdom is not quicker and that they do not progress in virtue uh, more quickly because of the fall that they experience, that they are then humbled in this very radical way that, strips away any illusion. And uh, so, yeah, I, th- I don't think there's any haphazard way uh, that John puts things together here. I think it was so well thought through and it's why it's endured throughout the centuries and while it's, why it's still read in every uh, Orthodox monastery, you know, during the, the holy season of Lent. Uh, it's because it presents us with, you know, this constant call of repentance, of turning toward God and the setting aside of illusions and, uh, and this constant straining forth. Almost at the, at the end of all of these, we hear the same thing in here at the end of this one. athlete, keep running fear, fearlessly that you know keeps training forward or agonizing forward to, to embrace the path that God has placed you, placed you on. And in every way you're going to be challenged. And so you have to courageously move forward. And again, I think we're not, we're not used to hearing the faith be talked about in this way. You know, certainly not going this deep into saying that, you know, our our vision, our understanding of of the virtues can really be lacking, and that we're called, again, not to simply embrace what our judgment and reason tells us those things look like, but what is revealed to us in Christ. That's what we're called to. Life in Christ. And when we say amen, when we receive the Holy Eucharist, this is what we're saying. I desire to become this, this very love that I receive.
2: I'm saying amen to that reality.
0: And it should give us pause, I think, when we come forward. You know, it's not as though we're giving something that is comparable to anything within this world. You know that we are given the very life of christ and we're saying yes this is how i want to live my my life i want my, I want my
2: life to be conformed to so
0: ashley and we'll end with her common hair the end of gaudi mitzvah's paragraph 24 comes to mind when i think of what we've talked about in regards to obedience and conforming oneself to Christ, that man cannot find himself except through a sincere gift of self. And I think it takes an extreme amount of grace and trust to get to a place of vulnerability. uh, Hold
2: on for a second. To a place of vulnerability
0: and docility to the Holy Spirit. Vulnerability, I think, has the root vulnera, which means being open to a wounding. And it makes sense that this would be required if every soul who wishes to be a, a saint, right? And you know, that's come up before. You know this idea of being vulnerable, and uh, certainly within the context of the spiritual life, you know we are opening ourselves up to the action of God's grace within us. And so when we hear the language of cauterization and purification, that shouldn't be surprising to us when we're being drawn into the perfection of love. So we're a little over time. So why don't we close there for the evening? We'll pick up next time with the the next step. And uh, again, don't hesitate to bring back things from previous steps to, to go back over them. I know these are, are challenging. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May I want to God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God.